freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Pal Shaw, and I'm here with Roxana Espaz, Light Ailey, and Bill Ayers, gathered in the spirit and the memory of Malik Aline for our seminar on freedom. That was the singer, songwriter, and freedom fighter Tom Morello with Let Freedom Ring, our podcast's hopeful theme song. Tom's generosity is an inspiration. He shows up whenever people are coming together under the banner of freedom in search of peace and justice. We're transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequency, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily into the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be or should be but is not yet. We're transmitting from the so-called Chicagoland area of Illinois, land stewarded for millennia by many indigenous peoples and lineages, including the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, and the Odawa, as well as the Menominee, Miami, Ho-Chunk, Sac, and Fox Nations. These human beings raised their children here, created their communities, made sense and meaning of their lives together, experienced the flowing and the passing of their time, planned for the future, and buried their dead here. We acknowledge them and thank them all. We were fortunate to catch up with Omar Shakur, Israel and Palestine Director at Human Rights Watch, where he investigates human rights abuses in Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza, and has authored several major reports, including a 2021 report comprehensively documenting how Israeli authorities are committing the crimes against humanity of apartheid and persecution against millions of Palestinians. He was generous with his time, and here is a bit of a conversation he had with Bill Ayers. It's time for our segment, Authors, Activists, Artists, and Academics After Hours. And we are delighted to be joined by Omar Shakur, who is the Israeli and Palestine Director at Human Rights Watch. Really appreciate your time, Omar. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Bill. It's an honor. I, uh, I heard you speak in downtown Chicago in a, in a forum with um, Rabbi uh, Brant Rosen, uh, Barbara Ransby was kind of moderating a conversation with you and Nathan Thrall, and I was completely taken with the kind of basic information that you brought to that meeting. And that's what, you know, kind of prompted me to see if I could find an hour when I could get a chance to talk to you. So as I say, I really appreciate your taking the time. Um, but I want to go back to that moment because you were you were largely referencing a report that you did for Human Rights Watch, um, and I think it was in 2021, on the situation of Palestine and Israel. Maybe we could start there and you could tell folks a little bit about what was going on prior to uh, October 7th. Yeah, I, I think it's such an important question, Bill. I'm so glad we start there because, you know, people act as if uh, the bloodshed, the repression started on October 7th, but on October 6th, Palestinians were facing war crimes, crimes against humanity, 
Um, and the one you referenced from our 2021 report um, was our finding that the Israeli government is committing crimes against humanity of apartheid and persecution um, against Palestinians. That was a 200 plus page report. It was based on more than two years of research where we looked not only at case studies comparing the treatment of Jewish Israelis with Palestinians who live nearby in the West Bank and East Jerusalem and Israel and Gaza, you know, but we actually looked at years of Human Rights Watch research. So we actually pulled together trends, statistics. We really compiled a complete picture of how Israel treats Palestinians. That was the research topic. We looked at statements by Israeli government officials, government statistics. We did our own uh, statistics, the work of our partners, and then we actually applied the law. And so international law has a prohibition on severe discriminatory oppression. It's known as apartheid. So while coined in relation to the events in Southern Africa, not just South Africa, but Namibia and elsewhere, um, international treaties, including the International Covenant on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, define apartheid as a universal legal term. And in fact, the ICC, the International Criminal Court's Rome Statute, identifies apartheid as one of 11 crimes against humanity. And it basically means, as a legal term, as a crime, when you have severe abuses that take place in a context of systematic oppression by one group of people over another, and when that's done with the intent to maintain the regime of domination, right? So you need intent to dominate, you need the systematic oppression and the uh, serious abuse known as inhumane acts. And when Human Rights Watch applied that those facts that we spent years documenting, the evidence was overwhelming that, that the Israeli government has pursued an intent uh, between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea to maintain the domination by Jewish Israelis over Palestinians. And I, I'll just lay it out and we can get into the discussion if you want and break out know, the different elements. We found that there was um, systematic oppression. Uh, of Palestinians for the benefit of Jewish Israelis, a single system engineered to maintain the dominate to maintain to privilege Jewish Israelis while systematically oppressing Palestinians. Um, and then lastly, we found that a number of abuses to Palestinians amount to what are known as inhumane um, acts um, that meet the criteria for for the definition. And of course, when we talk about October sixth, October seventh, it's important to note that Palestinians in Gaza were among those facing apartheid. They were under a more than sixteen year closure. So we're talking about uh, a, a generalized ban on movement, sweeping restrictions on the entry and exit of goods. We're talking about a more than half century occupation characterized by systematic rights abuse. And we're talking about 75 years that 70% of the population who are refugees have been denied their right under international law to return to their homes in Israel proper that they were expelled or forced to flee. So that's just a snapshot of that research and how it relates to the current events. I want to get some specifics, but when you say the people have been refused the right to return to their homes, hasn't the mythology or the, the narrative that's been put out by American power and by um, Israeli governments, liberal and conservative, that that Palestinians left of their own accord? Isn't that the isn't that the narrative that's that, that that's been dominantly uh, thrown out there? I think it's there, but I think Bill's being challenged. And actually, in some ways, recent events are helping people to better understand that situation because, you know, you have a situation today where we have the largest 
forced uh, displacement of Palestinians since 1948 in Gaza. You have 1.9 million people, 85% of Gaza's population, who are today displaced. Most of them are crammed in Rafah, the city in southern Gaza that's overrun and overcrowded. And for many, again, 70% of Gaza are refugees from 1948. So you're talking about um, older people and their uh, descendants who remember the very same army barreling down on their homes um, that either forced them to flee. They either fled out of fear of what was coming amid reports of killings and massacres that took place throughout um, then mandatory Palestine before the creation of the state of Israel in 1948. But in some cases, they were expelled. Um, and so people, when they see the events in Gaza, it's now been three months, Bill. I mean, more than three months. And the, I mean, this evacuation order that was issued, um, you know, has now, um, you know, held for three months. And we know all about the rhetoric of Israeli government officials who are talking about not letting Palestinians back to their homes. So I think some people see this and they can imagine what it might have been like, again, different technology, different era, era, different media coverage. But um, I think people more and more understand um, that reality. And the fact that people today are still, um, you know, the descendants, they're still in refugee camps, not only in Gaza and the West Bank, but in Lebanon and Jordan and Syria, continuing to demand generations later their fundamental right to return to their uh, the areas that they're from, I think is a testament to um the fact this was not a choice they made. This was a choice they were forced to make or had no choice and were expelled. You know, you, you bring up such an important point and, and there's new levels of consciousness in the last several months about not just Palestine, but new levels of consciousness about Israel and what Zionism in fact is. And I think what's most important or not most important, but certainly important to me is there's new level consciousness in the United States about the role of U.S. empire. And I think that's been a really stunning development in the last four months. New ways of thinking about Palestine, Israel, and the U.S., the role of the U.S. No, and it's interesting, Bill, that you bring that up because it's it's a shame in some ways that it took thousands of dead Palestinian children, that it took almost 25,000, more than 24,000 Palestinians killed, the majority are women and children, to have this kind of awakening. But you're right to note that there has been this kind of shift. I think the shift was happening, obviously, before. I think you can look back years, and there are a lot of reasons for it. But certainly, and that it wasn't inevitable, Bill, because I think when October 7th happened, it was such a traumatic event for many, right? Not just in Israel, but for many around the world. And, you know, you haven't had a moment of symmetry, perceived symmetry in violence. Because if you look since the early 2000s, last two decades, um, you know, you look at when Gaza conflicts happen. I mean, there are war crimes committed, of course, also by Palestinian armed groups, but the civilians killed, the people killed. We're talking about, you know, um, you know, usually hundreds, not thousands of Palestinians and a handful uh, of Israelis. So you haven't had a situation, um, you know, but uh, unlike in the early 2000s where there were suicide bombings and you did have a different climate. So there was a, you know, and, and obviously the re- conversation has shifted in 20 years because people more and more understand that this is not a conflict between two equal parties, that there is structural violence, structural repression. There is apartheid. I mean, there's been a growing recognition. October 7th um, could have been a moment that re um changed and, and reverted back to the perception of the early 2000s. You and I lived through it. We remember it. You know, in the younger generations don't. If you're somebody who's 21, you only know 
um, the rounds of Gaza escalations, the apartheid, the annexation debate, the nation state law, all these developments that are all about, you know, emphasizing that, that one state reality of apartheid. But that's not what happened because the Israeli actions in Gaza starting minutes after October 7th, um, you know, you're, you quickly reestablish the disproportionality um, in general, uh, that, you know, the, the disparity of, of suffering. And that's not to say Israelis don't continue to suffer. You have hostages that continue to be uh, unlawfully held and their families suffer and you do have rockets fired, but there's no way you can equate that with the um, absolute catastrophe, the horror um, that Palestinians in Gaza face every day. You know, it, it, it's, it has irritated me. And in my talking to friends and colleagues, uh, the idea that the war started on October 7th, that seems to me one of the great, I mean, that's a, another example of a narrative that, that hasn't really taken hold, but tried to take hold. And in the mass media, in many ways, has taken hold. The war began in October 7th. But that just eradicates 75 years of history and certainly the last 17 years in Gaza Absolutely. Itself. I mean, I think, um, you know, obviously something did happen that was significant, uh, very, very significant on October 7th. And it did shift uh, many things. But uh, what, what I say often, Bill, when people, when I answer this question is to say, what we're experiencing is, I think, without doubt, the worst period of modern violence and oppression in the modern history of Israel-Palestine. Um, but what's unprecedented is the scale of, of it. Right. Actually, almost all the abuses we're seeing were happening for years, um, but just at, at a different scale. So it's not a difference of kind. It's a difference of scale. And I say this not only, you know, not only about what's happening in Gaza, but also the West Bank, also on October 7th. And we are precisely here because of decades of impunity for unlawful attacks and for Israel's apartheid against Palestinians. So I think there's a way we can all recognize that this moment is different. Um, and that something did shift on October 7th without claiming that it's, um, you know, like something that's completely for different beast or animal because we did see unlawful killings. We did see uh, forced displacement. You know, we did see, um, uh, you know, excessive force, disproportionate attacks, indiscriminate attacks, rocket attacks. We did see unlawful detentions. We did see even uh, Israelis that are being held in Gaza, there have been, you know, two, uh, at least two Israeli civilians who have been held in Gaza for more than eight years, nine years that Human Rights Watch has written about and talked about. So, you know, all of these things happened and, um, you know, we didn't address the root causes like impunity, like apartheid. And so we've seen this um, absolute um, escalation um, in unprecedented moment. Human Rights Watch used the term apartheid in 2021, and you got a fair amount of pushback on that. But Palestinians have used that word for years. I've, I mean, all the people I know have used the word apartheid to describe the situation, just as you laid out in the beginning of our conversation. But one of the things that's changed is, we talk about shifts, but one of the shifts is that more people in Israel, more people high up in Israel are using the word Apartheid. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think and in some ways, the debate on apartheid within Israel is far more advanced than it is in certainly Germany, certainly the United States at the, at the level of the political class, um, you know, but but maybe even more broadly. I mean, look, within Israel, uh, you have a situation where you have senior former government officials. Now, I'm talking about 
a Netanyahu appointed director of the Mossad. I'm talking about the head of the Northern Command of the Israeli Army. I'm talking about the Director General of Israel's Foreign Ministry, the Attorney General, Deputy Attorney General, former ambassadors have all used the term apartheid to describe what Palestinians are facing. You have former prime ministers that have talked about it, prime ministers that have talked about it as a hypothetical, a future scenario, but you have these senior officials have talked about in the current moment. You have 27 Israeli human rights groups that a year ago described the treatment of 27, all the prominent ones were basically there, who have described the treatment of Palestinians um, as apartheid. In some ways, it's, I mean, during the anti-Netanyahu protests, you saw even the term more and more entering um, main, you know, you had even spokespeople for the protest movement that were starting to use the term. So I think there is a recognition among a huge part of Israeli society that what's happening to Palestinians is apartheid. By the way, even the debate, it's not like people are publicly disputing that in the public sphere of Israel. Even the rebuttal is something to the degree of why are you talking about that? Um, it's their fault. They ex- didn't accept the peace accords. There isn't like an argument to say, no, 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 that's not what we're doing. Like we're actually, you know, we're actually give them their rights. I mean, sometimes there's a misdirect of talking about Palestinian citizens of Israel who have, you know, compared to those in the West Bank and Gaza slightly, uh, you know, have a better situation, you know, if you compare it that way, but are still obviously have faced systematic discrimination and worse vis-a-vis Jewish Israelis who live in the same territory. But there isn't really a counter debate. I mean, you mentioned this report I wrote, what, two and a half years ago? Um, and, you know, no one has challenged the facts in there. I've done dozens of meetings with governments, including the U.S., Germany, all these governments. Nobody has come and said, hey, you got this fact wrong or this analysis gets this wrong. You know, it's mostly just been people burying their head in the sand or saying, why are we having this conversation? But nobody's really, you know, there's not really a serious rebuttal, you know. You know, when Americans go there or Western Europe, Europeans go there, um, it's, a, it's a shocking reality um, that the, when they see apartheid in practice and they see a road that you can only drive on if you're a Jewish Israeli or, a, or, or a, a, a pass, you can only go through this gate if you have a certain pass. And, and, and they see it up close. So most recently, um, the, the, the brilliant Tanaisi Coates went to Israel. He carried along with him our friend is uh, Rashid Khalidi's book, The Hundred Year War Against Palestine. But his first comments on coming back were, "I was told it was complicated. I got there, there was nothing complicated." So maybe because a lot of the folks listening to this haven't been able to go there, maybe you could explain some of the day to day what's not complicated about seeing segregation and apartheid. What are some? Yeah, I mean, there's so many, but let's start with the West Bank, where to, uh, where Coates was. I mean, you have a reality. There were two people. Uh, I'm taking East Jerusalem out for a second. Two populations live in the exact same territory, about half a million Jewish Israelis, who, by the way, live in settlements, which are war crimes. They're violations of the Fourth Geneva Convention. Um, and about 10% of Israel's population now lives in settlements. And now I'm including East Jerusalem in that. But taking just the West Bank alone, different legal systems, right? So like, you might live across the street in some cases. You commit the very same offense. You're tried in different courts. You receive different due process rights. Or if I'm going to be more accurate, the Palestinian has zero due process. The Jewish Israeli has due process. And you receive different sentences for the very same crime. Um, and it's not just a matter of these dual legal regimes, right? I mean, you have a reality where Jewish Israelis are citizens of Israel that live in the settlements. They can go on roads back and forth um, to Israel proper. Um, 
They have the same rights wherever they go. Uh, they can move back and forth. They can move their family there, etc. Palestinians are not citizens of Israel. Um, they need permits to enter Israel and also even parts of the West Bank. Um, even where they have permits, they have to go through these hundreds of closure obstacles, including checkpoints that can turn, you know, a short commute into an hours long humiliating ordeal. And these checkpoints are built between Palestinian communities for the most part, right? These Palestinians are, um, you know, when it comes to land, for example, I mean, they can't even, settlements are built on stolen Palestinian land. They can't enter settlements even, except if they're a laborer bearing a special permit. Um, you know, so these settlements are built on stolen Palestinian land. Palestinians are reduced to living in these territorial enclaves. There are the movement restrictions that I mentioned earlier. Within the majority of the West Bank, where Israel has exclusive control, an area called Area C, it's impossible for a Palestinian to get a building permit, whereas Jewish Israelis living in illegal settlements are expanding all the time. Uh, 2016 to 2018, the Israeli government issued 100 times more demolition orders than building permits for Palestinians um, in these areas. They not only have the natural resources that are theirs, like the water that's under the ground, that, are, that the Israeli government controls uh, and steals uh, from, from this occupied territory, which is itself unlawful. But then when it's redistributed to them, um, it's done in a very discriminatory allocation and basis. Um, and, you know, I could go on and on about the West Bank, but it's not just the West Bank. Let's be clear. East Jerusalem, even though Israel annexed this territory formally, which has its own illegality, as many others have talked about, but and it's not recognized still occupied territory as a matter of law. East Jerusalem, a Palestinian Jerusalemite, who again might live across the street from a Jewish Israeli, is not a citizen of Israel for the most part. And their very legal status is conditional. They could lose it by studying abroad, by moving to another community, whereas a Jewish Israeli has that status, you know, in perpetuity. 15,000 Palestinians since uh, 67 have lost their right to live in Jerusalem. And of course, that affects their larger families because they were abroad for too long or moved. Doesn't happen. Zero for Jewish Israelis. And then, of course, Gaza, which we've been talking about at, at length, where or many of these dynamics, you have a generalized travel ban, the movement restrict, the restriction on goods, the rounds of um, uh, violence, not just the hostilities, but when they protested, um, you know, in 2018, 2019, during what was called the March of Return, they were gunned down, uh, you know, scores were killed. So we can go on and on, even within Israel proper, these dynamics uh, persist. So the examples are replete. And, you know, as you noted in asking the question, like, it's 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 really is impossible for a fair-minded person who tries that spends time in Israel Palestine and, and goes around to not see the reality it's impossible to, to unsee what your eyes look at you can deny you can bury your head in the sand but it's impossible if you look at it fairly not to see that the reality for millions of Palestinians is one of apartheid you know I, I'm thinking you brought up the West Bank and the killings in the West Bank uh, uh, Israelis citizens kill Jewish Israelis killing Palestinians with with no consequences. And there was a headline in the New York Times about thirty million dollars worth of rifles being sent to you know assault rifles being sent to Israel, mostly going to the West Bank. And these are the kind of things that Americans have been blind to, but are seeming to wake up to. And that's encouraging to a degree. But has there been an American regime, an American government? that opposed the illegal settlements in the West Bank? Has there been any, or, or what's been the distinctions between the various administrations? So let me talk about the settler violence part of your comment and then get to your question. So like, yes, there is more and more recognition that there is 
rampant violence committed by settlers, that there's impunity. And it's not just an accidental impunity, it's structural impunity. The system is there to protect the settlers and not to protect the Palestinians and to prosecute them. And the statistics are, are, you know, by Israeli human rights groups talk about, you know, how few of the complaints and many Palestinians don't even bother complaining. You know, it's, it's a fraction. It's a very small, it's a single digit number, you know, 7% of those complaints are even leading to, um, you know, investigations, much less to um, convictions. Um, but yeah, there it has been a shift. The Biden administration, for example, called for sanctioning, violent settlers. but And that's an important step. I want to recognize that that's something. But that also risks misconstruing the problem as one of extreme settlers when the problem is illegal settlements that the Israeli government has um, for decades been involved in, in building up. The war crime is transfer of civilian population. It's what the government does to facilitate moving people into settlements. That's not to say settler violence isn't a real issue. I mean, we've seen more than a thousand Palestinians displaced since October 7th who cite settler violence as the reason, even before October 7th, we were entire communities. We'd wake up and they'd be off the face of the earth because overnight settlers forced them out of their home uh, with no consequence. But to your question about the U.S. administration, the U.S. policy until Trump, you know, the legal position of the State Department was that, you know, settlements were illegal. In fact, in the end of the Obama administration, again, for all the criticisms we have, the UN passed Resolution 2334, which affirmed the illegality of settlements, and the US did not use their veto on that resolution. They abstained. Um, so it's binding, has the force of law. So while that was the formal US position um, for many, many years, the reality has been the US has done nothing beyond those words to actually, um, you know, push the Israeli government to um, you know, dismantle settlements. I mean, the most you got was conversation in the Obama years about maybe a, a short-term settlement freeze. You know, during the Clinton years, everything was channeled through the peace process rhetoric, even the Bush years, um, you know, which is problematic, right? Because, um, you know, the peace process has become a fig leaf um, where, you know, instead of actually addressing the root causes, structural violence, repression, human rights, you know, we, we talk about a peace, when there's been no peace, real peace process for well over, uh, well over a decade. And and even during the time which there was some sort of process, you know, you're, I mean, settlements, if you look at the beginning when Oslo, the peace part, early 90s, you have a sevenfold increase in the po- population of settlers. So um, there was never really, even where there were negotiations, the facts on the ground continue to shift. And there was this problematic U.S. policy of not if only being able to speak of peace process and not to actually take action or impose consequences for illegality and human rights abuse. So Trump obviously changed that State Department determination uh, that settlements were presumptively unlawful. And, you know, Pompeo and Trump and, and Friedman and that whole crop, you know, embraced the settlements much more than previous administrations. And the problem with the Biden administration, among the many problems of the Biden administration, is not only did they not roll, I mean, they didn't even go back to end of Obama. It's not like they rolled back the Trump legacy. Many aspects of the Trump overhaul uh, and again, it's not even fair to say overhaul because in some ways he was just a more dramatic manifestation of what's been happening with U.S. policy for many, many years. Definitely took it to a different level. But again, difference of degree and not in kind. Um, in the Biden administration, I think to say its position has been shameful might be being too generous in the face of 
the atrocities in Gaza, you know, failing often to even criticize the Israeli government um, and continuing to supply arms. Uh, we warned from the early days that, you know, um, we called for cutting, suspending arms sales, given the real risk that they would be used to fuel uh, war crimes. And we warned of the risk of complicity in war crimes. And yet not only has the U.S. continued to provide arms, but they've even gone around Congress to try and kind of sneak them in to even avoid a, a transparent discussion about U.S. arms. So I think it's been it's a deeply problematic policy. In, in my circles, we felt that Israel couldn't exist without U.S. support. And in the recent conflict, in the recent firestorm since October 7th, with in my view, and, and I'm interested in whether you agree with this this uh, analysis, that the, the Israelis pre-announced that they were going to commit genocide. They pre-announced that high officials said, this is what we're doing, no food, no water, no medicines, and so on. And days later, President Biden goes in and gives them a full embrace and hasn't backed down. I mean, a, a ceasefire would be happening now if it weren't for the U.S. Do you I think, think that's I think, right? I think there's a lot to be said about that. The, the answer is we don't know because we've never actually seen the U.S. use all its leverage um, to challenge Israel. I mean, there have been moments in U.S. history, and Bill, you, you probably will know more because we have to go back quite a bit. You know, maybe the Baker years where the U.S. tried to kind of, you know, the first Bush presidency tried to use that leverage in any sort of meaningful way. I do believe in this current moment, if the Biden administration, you know, really did threaten action, right, which, you know, in all the ways, Security Council action, you know, really put everything on the table. I do think the, the Israeli government, yes, absolutely would recalculate, reassess and, and probably end uh, overnight uh, what they're doing in Gaza. I think it would change the calculus entirely. I think Netanyahu and not just Netanyahu, other Israeli leaders have long just taken for granted that no matter what they do, nothing will be too extreme uh, for this U.S. government. And, and I wrote an op-ed in The Guardian, I believe, like a week or two after October 7th, where I said, guys, there is a real risk of mass atrocities. The, look at what the Israeli government has said in, since October 7th. And the warning signs were there. Many, many issued warnings two, three days after October 7th, um, saying that there's a risk of atrocities and that the world needed to act. And here we are, 105 days into plus maybe in, into what's transpiring and what's happened on the ground may, be, may have even exceeded what some of us that were very worried had warned might take place. I mean, who could have envisioned a reality where, you know, much of northern Gaza has been reduced to rubble, like entire neighborhoods, you know, almost every day seeing, you know, universities and homes and high-rise buildings and neighborhoods. It's and, and we don't even know the whole story because it's so difficult to get information out of Gaza. Even for those of us that, you know, do this for a living, like to verify information is really, really challenging. So I think what we will see, you know, when the day comes that access is provided in northern Gaza and journalists can go and full access given to aid organizations, I I really worry about uh, how you know what we'll find. Because even what we've documented I fear is only um, it's not capturing the whole picture. I mean, I think there's uh, I think there's a reason that no free press has been allowed to wander free into that battle zone. I mean, it's all very controlled, and and yet the truth sneaks out. Um, I'd be interested in your take on what's going on with the International Criminal Court 
and South Africa and, you know, how, how that's playing out in the, in the world stage. Yeah. So, I mean, we have two different proceedings. We have the International Court of Justice with South Africa and the International Criminal Court. So look, with the International Court of Justice um, hearings that took place, um, you know, on January uh, 11th and 12th, I think this is a really momentous uh, occasion because it is, you know, precisely a moment where, and this is, you know, these conventions, the genocide convention, but also many other in- aspects of international law have these mechanisms where people can go in order for a state's actions to be scrutinized and to reach an authoritative determination. So I think um, that's what South Africa is asking. It's asking for, um, and I think the gravity and severity of abuse on the ground, whatever you might think about whether or not it's genocide, it warrants this sort of scrutiny by the, the world's court. Um, and so I think it's really significant that South Africa has brought this issue. We've called on states to support these proceedings uh, because, and, you know, and to make clear that they're going to abide by the court's ruling, however uh, it turns out. But beyond just that, because that ruling on the merits is going to take probably several years. You know, we have the case of Gambia and Myanmar that's still under consideration, Russia, Ukraine. There are many other analogous cases. But the big discussion now is the provisional measures because, you know, South Africa has asked the court to take these urgent measures to protect Palestinians in Gaza. Um, and they've asked for a cessation of hostilities. They've asked for a number of other things. And um, the threshold for issuing these measures doesn't require you to find genocide. You just have to find the allegations plausible. Uh, in essence. So I think it's quite likely that the court will put in place provisional measures. Now, what measures will the court take? I think that's where it's going to be harder to predict what what exactly they'll do. And we should know that in a matter of a, in weeks. I think it could, you know, could be as soon as next week. It could be something that takes, um, you know, into February. But um, we we should have an answer on that in the coming you know few weeks. Um, and I think that's going to be a momentous moment. And then, of course, we can get into the International Criminal Court uh, later, but that there's also, and there's also the advisory opinion that the International Court of Justice has been asked to render on the consequences of Israel's occupation, uh, prolonged occupation, which was asked to fit by the UN a year ago. So there are, you know, these three different, and there, there are others, but these three main processes that are all moving at their own pace, but all of which have the potential to provide, um, protect civilians, to prevent further atrocities. But we'll have to see what transpires. You know, you said it will be a momentous moment uh, internationally. Say, say more. Why? How? I think it's mo- momentous for a lot of reasons. But I think in part because, um, you know, for Palestinians, let's start with what it means for Palestinians. Uh, you know, for Palestinians um, to have this moment where the world's court is sitting and hearing a, pers- you know, a compelling rendition of facts about their predicament and to know that they are considering measures to provide protection, even where the stronger power opposes it, is quite strong. I mean, I think um, there has been this perception, you know, out there that these courts, international courts, um, you know, serve the agenda of the powerful, that the courts are, you know, spring to action with Ukraine or with cases like Myanmar, but in a case where it involves a powerful country that has strong allies like Israel, there is impunity. And, you know, the, they used to say, what, years ago that the ICC was only going after countries in Africa, and that has ebbed and evolved, but there's a sense that there are double standards. And certainly there are double standards in countries uh, throughout the world, but including the US and Europe. But there was a real worry that these institutions won't be a forum for these kinds of cases. So South, Af- South Africa has taken this moment. And this is a state that has overcome apartheid. It still has many 
serious issues any South African will tell you, is now going to the world's court to challenge uh, the Israeli government under the Genocide Convention for committing grave abuses. So I think just to have that scrutiny by the world's court, given these dynamics, and, and to me, and not not to be too long-winded, but I think it's momentous because you have these four factors coming together, right? You have one, you have this the Ukraine rally around the international law rules-based order rhetoric. You have the gravity of the abuses on the ground on October 7th, since October 7th in Gaza in the West Bank. And then you have these proceedings that are sort of crescendoing at the same moment, right? Like this proceeding next month, the International Court of Justice will hear the arguments for the advisory opinion, the ICC prosecutors actively, as he's saying, investigating these claims. So to have all these things sort of coming together at the same you know, moment is significant. I wonder, maybe that explains, you spoke earlier about the shifting opinion and the, the shifting opinion, not only worldwide, but inside the United States. And I wonder if the moment of Ukraine was part of that. That is, you know, it, the, we were very aware and made aware of a, an, an illegal, monstrous invasion of a big country on a little country. And then suddenly we're looking here and we're seeing something similar, but we're on the other side. I mean, do you think that's part of the shift or part of the context of the shift? I think Ukraine is part of it, um, you know, but I, I really do think that it's not as much Ukraine because there there is another narrative that sees Ukraine is more analogous, Israel is more analogous to Ukraine, right? And that's in the U.S. political class that has been focused on Ukraine. It's almost like this counter narrative. And sometimes for those of us in the human rights international law world, it's kind of jolting because the same legal principle that Putin was indicted on by the ICC is exactly the same crime that we've documented that, you know, transfer that we've talked about in the context of the occupied Palestinian territory. So I think it's less about Ukraine, although I do think the double standards argument um, is strong, right? Because even before October 7th, you had this reality where you talked to, you know, because the world wanted to rally around against Russia, right? So they were passing these resolutions at the UN, but you went to many parts of Asia, sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, Middle East and countries would say, well, like, how come the same defense of international humanitarian law and occupation law? Why is it not being marshaled with Israel Palestine? And I think that argument carries a lot of weight. And I certainly think maybe in Europe and parts of Europe, it's helped to shift the thing. But I think in the United States, there are other factors that, that are at play. I think it's less about Ukraine and that moment. I think it's more about what's happened over many years with, um, you know, connections, for example, between the racial justice movement and the international human rights. And that has a history from the civil rights movement, obviously. There, But I think the U.S. shift is coming from more that than the Ukraine um, discussion. I mean, I, I think about the various trips that have been taken to Israel-Palestine, uh, a black women's trip uh, led by Barbara Ransby, Angela Davis consistently. And I can't think of a black intellectual in the last 20 years who hasn't come to understand that Palestine is an oppressed uh, people. Palestinians are an oppressed people. So I think that's huge in the United States. But But even with that in place, even with that, you were talking about the shift. I have been it's been breathtaking for me to witness uh, such a brave and consistent resistance to this um, to this Israeli action and the U.S. role in it, and how how quickly it happened and how consistently it's been there. And I'm talking about jo Jewish Voice for Peace, uh, Students for Justice in Palestine, 
and, and a lot of other people. But but this idea that that it didn't take three years, it took three months for there to be a real mobilization that actually began to reach into uh, pockets of power. Have you seen it that way? I really don't think it, I think the three months came out of, you know, uh, a number of things. So it's 20, people, 2021, that hostilities then was really, uh, and it came from the ground in Palestine, right? It wasn't just internationally. It came from the protests in Sheikh Jarrah and the way they were followed everywhere else. And the way, in, in you know, and the apartheid discussion was a part of it because people, um, I'm going to give you an anecdote, Bill, but I think it speaks to how people process this information, this super inside human rights. But whenever we release a report at Human Rights Watch, generally the biggest days of traffic for the report are like the dates released, then the next day, and the next day, and it kind of tapers off. But if you look at the web traffic on our apartheid report, it was released on April 27th, 2021. The hostilities began like, I think it was May 10th. So if you look at the traffic for our report, you know, you have April 27th, April 27th, you know, then it starts to wane, wane down. Then on May 10th, it shoots and far expands beyond what it was the day of release. And the way that we understand it is people were starting to ask questions of why is this happening? What's the, what's the bigger picture? And there, I think the credit is mainly with the activists on the ground because they were, um, you know, forcing the debate about, um, forcible transfer being kicked out of your homes. And, and so I think, you know, you saw that shift in what's what led AOC. It's what led people in the U.S. Congress, the squad and others to use apartheid on the, on the floor of Congress. But you saw, you started to see more and more voices from civil society, um, coming out. And so, and, and again, that also is not an accident. Like it took, you know, there was from, you know, 2014, maybe even before then, you know, many years of, you know, students coming from even the early, the BDS, a group from the 2000s. So I think there's these things were all building stages. So I think where we are today, and you're right to note the shift of the last three months, but I think it's it's growing on what was laid 2021 before that, <laughs> uh, the years before that. So it's been, a, I think, a, a continuous process. Yeah. And, and you mentioned um, the report getting a lot more traction when facts on the ground kind of agitated people to want to know more. It's been fascinating to me that Rashid Khalidi's 100 Years War Against Palestine has been a bestseller in the last couple of months. And that's a book that's several years old, you know, and it's kind of amazing that it's up because people want to know. They're searching for information. And, and I guess I want to ask you, in people's search for information, both what are you reading? What should folks read? I mean, I guess I want to Couple that with how do they get a hold of you and your report? How could people reach you? How could they get your report? And what should they be reading? Yeah, so I mean, good, great question. So I mean, in terms of our report, easy to find. Type go to Human Rights Watch's website, hrw.org. We have an Israel Palestine page where you can find everything we've posted about uh, in the in recent days. You'll find almost you know very very regular um, reports and publications and op eds uh, there. You can type in apartheid Israel HRW, you'll find it. So that's difficult. I'm on Twitter, um, you know, uh, Omar Shakur, and I'm, you know, I'm tweeting there uh, quite often. Um, in terms of what people should read, I actually think um, the event bill that you started with, um, I, I would highly recommend Nathan Thrall's um, book. I think you've had him maybe on your program, um, but I would highly recommend A Day in the Life of Abid Salama as like, especially if you're new and you want to really understand the daily life for Palestinians living under apartheid. Uh, and you want to do it in a narrative uh, way and, and, and a human story. I think that's a great 
um, that's a really great place um, to start. But in terms of like, you know, people who want to sort of, um, you know, get up to speed, uh, you know, with the reality on the ground in a, in a, in a context in which there's so much, um, you know, misinformation out there, you know, I would acknowledge that, that, that it's challenging to get really good, um, you know, fact-based reporting. But I think you, you, there are outlets out there for it. I think, um, you know, 972 MAG, which is an independent publication from Israel-Palestine, um, you know, publishes really good, uh, you know, pieces. I think you have different platforms that Palestinians, there's Shebeka, it's a think tank that puts out pieces by Palestinian intellectuals. Um, you have other, you know, Haaretz, you know, even though it's, you know, can be here or there and you need a subscription, but generally you can find, you know, good news stories there. So, you know, in this day and age, you know, if you follow the right people on social media, they will link you to the good, you know, the articles that are out there and following human rights groups directly and hearing from their perspective, Palestine groups, international groups, the information's all out there. Um, and, and I highly recommend the work of human rights organizations, but even like the UN, I mean, they've been putting out lots of information. You can go to the UN um, Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. Every day, um, they post an update on Gaza with very detailed accounts of what's happening on the ground. And so you can read it directly from the source. You don't need to rely on an intermediary uh, for it. You know, so many, so many arguments are, are going on now, but one of the things that strikes me, you were expelled from Israel. You were in Israel on a work permit and you were expelled from Israel in 2019. Is that correct? Yes. And, 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 and you were, was it the first time a human rights worker was expelled? Is that, maybe you'd tell the story just a bit. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a long, long story, but, 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 you know, the, you know, not the shortest version, but, you know, basically, you know, Israel had denied Human Rights Watch back in early 2017 permission to hire, to get a work permit, uh, claiming that we were in a real human rights organization. A stink was kicked up. Eventually the organization got the work permit. I got a work visa under it. I entered it. There was an entire process. The Israeli government then ordered me deported claiming that I supported boycotts uh, of Israel. We challenged that decision, the law that, that was based on and the decision. We spent a year and a half in the Israeli court system and they deported me in late 2019. Now, it was the first time that the Israeli government deported somebody under this new law for allegations of boycott and certainly the first time they did so for a representative of a major human rights organization. Now, they've blocked entry of many people. Uh, you know, including UN investigators, mechanisms, amnesty staff, uh, and others. Palestinians, of course, have faced it the worst, Palestinian Americans. But for somebody like me who had a work visa there to then be deported under claims that our human rights advocacy, and that's the interpretation the court upheld, that our work, and literally we, we talk about our work on businesses and settlements, you know, like Airbnb, where we said you shouldn't be brokering rentals on land stolen from Palestinians who can't live there. Um, and this was a call to Airbnb to meet their human rights responsibilities under the law, that that itself was, was a boycott call under Israel on grounds for deportation. Basically, they're saying that if we tell companies don't be complicit in rights abuse, don't abuse people's rights, that was grounds to be deported yes. from a country like Israel is, was, you know, was eye-opening for many. Well, now, since you've been, you know, you've been here a long time and, and you, you went to Stanford Law School and so on, but recently, since October 7th, you've been canceled a few times, as I understand it. Um, I think Mona Khalidi told me the other day that you were canceled at Columbia. Is that true? It's actually, uh, Muna's not wrong that twice my events at Columbia were canceled, but the event eventually happened. Um, 
Yeah. And actually, I've never, I'm not actually, I've probably given, I want to say 50 or 60 talks over the last, because I've been in the US more over the last year. And I want to say none of them have ever been canceled except Columbia twice, but eventually it went forward. Um, but you know, that bureaucratic obstacles, but you know, what happens to me, I represent one of the world's largest human rights organizations, and I'm speaking about our fact-based reporting uh, and legal conclusions. So the fact that even there is this question, and there certainly have been attempts to cancel me, including at the University of um, Chicago and, and other places, but those events have gone forward, uh, you know, and in, in every single case, large audiences, you know, engagement has taken place. Um, so I think it just, it 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 highlights that the tactics of supporters of the Israeli government is shifting. Um, two decades ago, you know, uh, when I was a college student, uh, every time an event in Palestine would happen, you'd be challenged, there would be op-eds, there would be a discussion, there would be a debate. That's not happening on colleges today. The Isra- supporters of the Israeli government know they've lost the argument. Like they know they can't challenge allegations of apartheid. And so instead... Instead, they're increasingly resorting to the tactic of shutting down the conversation. And I think that's the overarching trend that we're seeing. I mean, one of the things that was shocking to many of us in, in, in certainly in academic circles was the, the um, uh, character assassination and the taking down of, of Claudine Gay at Harvard. And, you know, one of the things I always think of when they go after a big person like that, a, a big institution, is the real message is for the little institutions and the little people. The real message is, if we can knock the president of Harvard off, what chance do you have? And I feel there's this chill running through the academy where presidents are feeling like, oh, I have to, what, sign a loyalty oath to what? To Israel um, and to Zionism. I mean, it's kind of shocking to me. And, and... I just, you've been both the the object of those attacks, but also have overcome them. But what is to be done in that regard, in in regard to suppression and and you know the denial of the right to get information? No, I mean it happened to Ken Roth, my my longtime boss at Human Rights Watch at the Harvard Kennedy School, where he was, uh, and then eventually under pressure they reversed and he took up his fellowship. But I think when when these high profile cases happen, they're meant, of course, to have a chilling effect, right? Like, you know, it's, if you're following the analogous, the analogy in news media, there was a situation in Australia where this young journalist was fired because she shared a human rights watch report about starvation as a, uh, civilians of civilians in Gaza uh, from ABC News in Australia. And again, when these things happen, you can imagine the chilling effect. You have journalists that are going and, you know, removing their posts because they're afraid of losing their job. So, um, and that's the, you know, the corollary to what we heard, which is if the goal is to um, shut down the conversation, one way you can do that is to delegitimize people who speak out and therefore intimidate others who might know the truth, but don't want to say it. So what do you do about that? I mean, I think the thing is to know that our numbers, when I say our numbers, those of us that speak out and criticize uh, human rights abuse in Israel, our numbers are growing. It's hard to cut a neck when there is a thousand of our necks on the line. Um, and more and more people see this for what it is, right? Um, and it's hard when you're, you know, say a young academic or you're in a vulnerable position. Uh, you know, you've, you've had students, of course, who have been doxxed right. and have lost. I've spoken to them who have lost job offers at law firms because of their um, activities. So I don't want to minimize 
um, that risk. And obviously those that are at most at risk should seek the help of a group like Palestine Legal, who, you know, or the Center for Constitutional Rights who are there to provide support. But for everybody else, I think, you know, the key message is more and more is speaking out, you know, um, and um, the best thing you can do is continue to speak out, make sure you do so rooted in fact, rooted in, um, you know, I, I, I learned when I was a law student, you're as strong as your weakest fact. And, um, and that's always what I advise advocates all the time is be rock solid, you know, because if you're going to speak out and challenge and confront, uh, you don't want to make a mistake on the facts because that's all anyone will talk about. So if everybody's fact, uh, you know, sticks to their facts, um, you know, uh, continue to speak out because more and more are doing so. And yes, there are the dramatic cases where people are penalized or punished for doing so, but there are, it's, it's become so widespread that um, it's no longer like it might have been 20 years ago when you really were a singular voice uh, in many of these institutions. You go to many places uh, and and most people um, understand the reality for what it is. Again, I'm not talking about Congress uh, you know, or the White House, but uh, certainly at universities, certainly at other uh, civil society spaces, um, that's you know, uh, that's, that's how people think. And I think speak out, uh, know that there's support if you need it, but also know that more and more are doing so. And if you do so rooted in fact and rooted in, um, you know, you'll, you'll be fine. We've talked, uh, on this podcast often about the distinction between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism and the, the, the question, you know, often comes up, but isn't Israel democracy? And you've certainly given us a lot of information that tells us, no, it's not a true democracy if if a huge segment of the population is both expelled and then denied rights. But but what about this question of anti-Zionism and the attempt now, and it feels very defensive to me, but the attempt to say, you don't support Israel wholeheartedly, you're anti-Semitic. How do you, you must get that question. Yeah. Well, let, let me, on the democracy question, I want to just say a sentence, which is to quote a friend of mine, Haggai Al-Ad, who was the executive director of B'Tselem, and he wrote an op-ed several years ago, and this line stuck with me, where he said, a dem- democracy is the rule of the people, not the rule of one people over another. And I think that kind of gets to the heart of the matter. Um, in terms of your question about anti-Semitism, look, I mean, um, we know anti-Semitism is a serious uh scourge, right? We see it all around the world. Certainly we've seen it on uptick since October 7th. But I think part of what we talked about earlier is the um, uh, attempt by some supporters of the Israeli government to equate advocacy for Palestinian rights or criticism of Israel with um, anti-Semitism. Because the charge of anti-Semitism, rightfully so, is such a serious charge that even the sniff of it can you know, um, can can really muzzle um, conversation. Um, and we as Human Rights Watch, you know, have begun to, you know, we've, we've been seeing this for years, but we, um, you know, a year ago began to speak out against the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. For those who don't know, it's the International Holocaust Remembrance Association has this definition of anti-Semitism, which has been endorsed by a number of states and other institutions. And we have called for the UN and other bodies not to adopt that definition of anti-Semitism because it lists 11 examples uh, of anti-Semitism, seven of which have to do with criticism of the Israeli government. It's things like talking about, um, quote, uh, talking about Israel as a racist endeavor is anti-Semitism. And so the, you know, the point we've made is, okay, that's such a vague thing that you could say saying it's apartheid, which is, you know, the consensus in the human rights movement, the Mossad, 
director called it apartheid. You could say that is uh, challenging it. There's another criteria, which is to say um, that if you single out, you know, I think I can't remember the exact wording, but single out Israel, you know, for criticism, you don't apply to Israel the standard, you apply to other democracies. That's what I think the wording is. That's anti-Semitism. But like, we just had the discussion about democracy a second ago, right? So that might not be the rubric um, everybody uses. But in addition to that, like, you know, if you're a Tibet, if you campaign for Tibetan rights in China, that doesn't make you an anti-Asian or anti-Chinese racist. Just like people campaign, you know, speak on, might just choose to focus on one issue for whatever reason they campaign on one human rights issue to assume that that's anti-Semitism. Um, so, we, you know, to, for a human rights organization, we weren't alone. We signed with the ACLU, with Israeli human rights group, with American Jewish groups. That was, re- you know, was an alarm bell to many people because it had reached the point where it was quite clear that the Israeli government, on on the on apartheid specifically, their response to all the apartheid reports and consensus was not a substantive fact based response. It was an effort to equate apartheid with anti semitism, and um, and and it takes many forms, but um, we could see clearly that's what was happening, and the result was having significant implications on freedom of expression for many. You know, it has an American analog, as you know, and that is DeSantis, Haley, uh, Trump. If you speak out against America, if you single out America for its history and its crimes, then you're either anti-American or anti-white or part of the replacement theory or something. So there is an American analog to what you're describing. Totally. You know, one last thing I'd like to have your comment on, because I, I get this all the time, um, I'd, I'd be interested, you know, as, you're as fault-based as anyone I know, and you, you go way back in, uh, in studying this situation, the phrase from the river to the sea um, is, is held up uh, several universities as an example of anti-Semitism. I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe that phrase from the river to the sea is in the, um, is in the founding document of Netanyahu's party. Now I could be wrong, but, but, what is your understanding of, of the phrase from the river to the sea? Look, it's funny you say this because, you know, Netanyahu literally on January 18th talked about that Israel will control the area from the river to the sea, right? Like using that exact same oppression, uh, expression. I, I didn't see Elon Musk or all these other folks, you know, talking about him, you know, uh, using anti-Semitic, um, you know, speech. Um, the first line of our report that we started talking about, the apartheid report, talks about 68 million Jewish Israelis and 6.8 million Palestinians that live in the area between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Um, you know, so obviously, um, you know, the phrase can mean different things depending on how it's used. Certainly Palestinians have used the phrase to call for um, lifting the oppression that Palestinians face in the geographic region that Israel controls, right? Which includes Israel. Some have talked about that was the territory of mandatory Palestine, the mandate of Palestine before the creation state of Israel in 1948. So, you know, look, there, there are many different ways you can draw and I'm not, um, you know, uh, I don't have an expertise on the history of the term, but what I can say is it's certainly legitimate expression. Um, it's certainly something that's protected. It certainly, certainly shouldn't be restricted. It's been used by Jewish Israelis, it's been used by Palestinian activists, it's been used by human rights organizations. Many people just literally mean the geographic territory. And some are obviously making calls within that geographic territory. So if you want to make a judgment, judge the call, 
Um, and of course, that's that that's what the misconstruction is, right? Because they take the phrase, which is about a geographic region, and they say, you know, free Palestine from the river to the sea, and they immediately say, well, you must, you know, you're you're not recognizing the existence of Israel, which exists between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, and you know, you can have a debate where Palestinian people who use the phrase will say, no, I don't, I'm not necessarily not recognizing it. I'm just saying I think all Palestinians who live in this area, who all face some form, should be lifted. There'll be others who say, well, why don't you say? you know, recognize Israel and say, you know, uh, I don't know, but it's not a good slogan to say, you know, protect the human rights of all people from, you know, so it's, it's, um, it's so politicized. And again, it's to the same trend we've talking about now for a little bit, which is let's shut down the car. Let's talk about the conversation. Uh, let's talk about how we're having the conversation. Let's not have the conversation. And that's, that's, um, that's also deliberate. What is so important to me about talking to you is the, is a couple of things, the fact-based nature of your approach and also the legal nature of your approach. I mean, the fact that you're referring again and again to international law, not to some ideological position, but to simply the idea of human rights, which is your um, your bailiwick, it's your home. So I really, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your spending time with us. It's been illuminating, um, energizing, and I appreciate everything you're doing. And thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Enjoy the conversation. Hope we can do it again another time. Thanks, Omar. Okay, folks, let's keep rising and resisting, making our lives a force for peace. Thanks to Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger at the generative and provocative podcast, Ergo, co-conspirators Roxana Espos and Palace Shaw. With joy in my heart, and freedom on my mind. Until next time.